Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust's Handbook, and this is the second podcast of the new year. And what an encouraging year it's proved to be for investors so far. Equity markets are up pretty much across the board. Bond yields are coming down a little, and the dollar is weakening. So a reversal of three of the most important trends that we saw during the year just gone, 2022, a year that uh, many investors will want to forget. Commodities were a little bit stronger, however, but the latest inflation figures do suggest that inflation has peaked and is beginning to come down, albeit the change is marginal so far. Gold, meanwhile, has also passed $1,900 an ounce, which is an interesting development and one perhaps to watch. Although the S&P 500 is up by the same amount, the FTSE 100 index of leading UK-listed stocks is now within breathing distance of its all-time high, which was recorded in May 2018. It has, however, been a fairly quiet week in the investment trust sector, with only one results announcement an interims release by Henderson Diversified Income, ticker HDIV, which was mildly disappointing with a negative total return of around 10% against a benchmark of just under 7%. You know, some handful of NAV updates, uh, but we have, however, had the first IPO announcement of the year with 8085 Global Mid-Market Infrastructure Income Trust, reviving its plan to raise some £300 million with a launch. Uh, That was first announced in November last year, but uh, deferred because of the difficult market conditions at the time. And there's also been further news from the troubled social housing sector, with uh, Home REIT confirming that uh, two of its tenants, accounting for about 13% of their overall uh, income, were not paying their rent or in rent arrears. Uh, which is exactly what short sellers which have targeted the trust have been alleging. The shares remain suspended while the board completes an audit. More on this story in a moment. To discuss this week's news and the encouraging start to the year, I was uh, joined again this week by Max King, former fund manager in Investec, and later we'll be discussing the property sector with Andrew Rees, the property investment trust analyst at Numis Securities. As always, there is a full summary of the week's investment trust news, and our regular tables of the main share price, NEV and discount movements over the past week and longer periods on the Moneymakers website for subscribers to the Moneymakers Circle. Uh, You'll also find there our latest trust profile, which this week looks at SDCL, Energy Efficiency Income Trust, ticker SEIT, which IPO'd in 2018. First then, though, to Max King, who was in confident mood when I discussed the markets with him last month, you may recall. So I began by saying that he must be pleased with the way that the markets have uh, kicked off this year. Yes, well, it's uh, very much as I'd expected. Uh, I mean, the consensus of you was the market would go down and hit new lows in the first half of the year and then recover. I always thought it was going to be an up, down and up. I expected the market to rally into the spring, then to sell off when all the good news was known about and everyone was getting bullish again, and then perhaps rally in the year end as we look forward to uh, better earnings next year. So that was always my route map for the markets, and it's um, working quite well. And the reason I thought that is I thought that energy prices would drop sharply, bringing inflation down, and that would be quite a boost for the for markets. And 
I know the central banks, particularly the Federal Reserve, is furious that the markets, uh, bond and equity markets, are paying no attention to what he says. Absolutely. <laughs> but um, as um, Ed Yardini says, whose views I very much agree with, he says, well, perhaps the Federal Reserve should pay more attention to the markets rather than the other way around. Yes, I think there's a, maybe a bit of a mindset there, given that they're all economists rather than market participants, that uh, they think they're pursuing their own kind of agenda as they see it from their perspective and uh, uh, perhaps not being quite as smart about the markets as they should be, as you said. Well, they think they're clever and the markets are stupid. And actually, most yes. of the time, the markets are cleverer than they are. Uh, most of the time, I would have to agree with you. <laughs> Though if you look at implied market interest rates, they're often completely wrong, you know, when they're looking forward. They may be right for about two seconds, and then they move around quite sharply. Well, they're not right, but they're more right than all the central bank or government forecasts. So, you know, they're they're a better guide than uh, anything else you can get around. Absolutely. I can't dispute that at all. Yeah. Well, I think uh, sentiment in the UK is held back by the dismal outlook for the UK economy. So, you know, whereas I'd be pretty optimistic about um, sort of the global economy, I think things will be fine. There'll be a mild recession, and then growth will continue or maybe no recession at all. I think the prospects for the UK are much worse, and I think we are facing a generation of stagnation. But that doesn't apply in the world at large, and therefore it doesn't apply to investment markets and opportunities. Indeed, though it's noticeable that the FTSE 100 has again been strong, up more than 4% since the start of the year, and is within touching distance of its uh, all-time high, which was achieved in 2018. Although it's uh, worth remembering that uh, it first hit the 7,000 level. It's now around 7,800, but it first hit the 7,000 level all the way back in uh, the year 2000 during the TMT bubble. It's taken a long time to get there, but um, we have to remember that at least 70% of FTSE earnings are derived from overseas. And it's not the private sector that's holding and will continue to hold the UK back. It's the uh, public sector and the great British public, of course. So do you buy, therefore, into the story that uh, if we see what's happening continuing, if we see, for example, the dollar continuing to lose value and for inflation scare to kind of settle down a bit, do you think that actually this is the time when the rest of the world markets are going to do rather better than the US for once, exceptionally? I think that UK will continue to underperform in the longer term, but it's clearly having a bit of a rally at the moment. And... uh, I tend to take the old-fashioned view that actually when the US market does well, the rest of the markets do well. And to expect that the rest of the world outperform the US you know, as it flies in the face of reason and history. I do think emerging markets are, are set for a good year. I think a lot of the emerging markets are doing very nicely. And I'm actually getting a lot more positive about China. I think that China's geopolitical strategy has turned on a sixpence, but they're not going to admit it. I think they've really lost interest in confrontation with the US and with Southeast Asia. And they're much more interested in the geopolitical opportunities offered up by the collapse of Russia. Yes, I guess the whole Ukraine situation and what's happened to Russia will be both a warning to them and also uh, justify that reorientation. And I think they'll see it as an opportunity. They'll see that actually Siberia is a vast underpopulated area full of resources. You know, it's the answer to their dreams. It will be easier to take a bit of that, you mean, a bit of Siberia than it would be to take a bit of uh, Taiwan. The Chinese don't do invasions. It's not their yeah. thing. But to, uh, gaining economic, political and social control of, uh, by other means would certainly be uh, right up their street. So what do you think about the Chinese Investment Trust? I was looking at them this morning. They've come up more than 10% already this year and up a lot more than that, 40% or so from their lows back in uh, October. But they're still basically a little over half what they were uh, back in 2021. So it's been a real roller coaster ride. 
I haven't looked at them in all seriousness, I have to admit. But one of the worst mistakes you can make in investment is to say, oh, well, it's up 40% off the low. I've missed it. Now, I think there's a lot further to go. And the number one priority of the Chinese government in the next year is going to be increasing the prosperity and living standards of the Chinese people. And that's the way they get over the embarrassment of COVID and the property sector and, and everything else, raising living standards. And raising living standards ought to be pretty good for investment in China. Not all investments in China. I'm sure you have to choose your stocks pretty carefully. And those who get above themselves, like Jack Ma at Alibaba, will always be uh, scrunched. But I think that the agenda of China is towards greater prosperity. And I, and I think they see markets as, a, as a, an important and useful part of that. Well, it'd be interesting to see whether they get the kind of end of lockdown surge that we had over here, which led to some, in retrospect, ridiculous movements in uh, the kind of reopening stocks, if you like, whether that uh, offsets the fact that obviously a lot of people are going to be ill and going to die because of COVID now, that the lockdowns are ending. It'd be interesting to see what happens there. A lot of people are and, uh, obviously are going to get ill, but then a lot of people are getting ill from flu and colds in the UK. And a lot of people are dying when it's a big country. And I, I doubt that the pandemic is going to be nearly this health disaster for China that everyone assumes. And, um, and that probably the government assumed in all their lockdowns. Yeah, I was more of thinking about the fact that they may, having finally been released from prison, essentially, then there might be something of a binge of tourism by Chinese uh, if they're allowed into other countries and spending on things just to make up for this sort of misery they've had for the last three years. Oh, certainly. They'll be heading to Paris and Switzerland. Uh, and our blessed government, of course, has tried to dissuade tourists from coming here by removing the VAT rebate for, for, for tourists. The number one tourist attraction for the Chinese in the UK is Bister Shopping Village. And yet um, the government have taken uh, deliberate action to spike the return of the Chinese and other tourists. Well, as someone who travels on the train between Oxford and London, I can certainly vouch for the the draw of uh, Bista Village. Because when you get on the train at Maribyrn, sometimes it's it's packed to the rafters with visitors from China. I understand that the train announcements are sometimes in Chinese. Is this that correct? Uh, yes, there is. There are some announcements in Chinese. Absolutely, yeah. And of course, the irony is that they go there to buy products, many of which are made in China anyway. So it's rather curious. Oh, but the, the luxury products have 100% tariff going into China. So buying them in the UK, and particularly Bista Village, with the tax rebate was extremely attractive and was what motivated a lot of them to come to the UK. They're not so interested in the sort of museums and uh, the Houses of Parliament, the cathedrals, that sort of stuff. It's Bista Shopping Village they want to go to. Indeed, but it's still one of the curiosities of the modern world that that is what, <laughs> how the world works, how people travel halfway around the globe in order to buy things that they could buy at home, albeit they're more expensive for the reasons you've said. Uh, so what else can we talk about this week? Well, we talked last time we spoke, which was before Christmas, obviously about the travails of home REIT. They seem to be not improving, if I can put that uh, mildly. The board has come out and said that they are not getting some of their rent now from a couple of their tenants which was something they said they weren't aware of uh, when they last put their statement out. Yes, yeah, so Chris all... Brown at JP Morgan Kaznick, I think, really put it very well. And he said that actually for them to issue a statement saying that there were no rent arrears at the end of August, at a time when they knew that there were uh, subsequently customers not paying, was not uh, very honest, shall we say. And I think he's right. I think they under-disclosed and they got problems. But I still say that I think the real worry in the longer term is that, you know, businesses which try and bridge the gap between the public and the private and charitable sectors are usually skating on thin ice. And I think that the big lesson of this longer term was, you know, social enterprise businesses, which basically try and help out the greater public from their problems, forget it, don't do it. 
the people in the not-for-profit sector and in the government don't mix with the private sector. And I think that's going to create significant housing problems, uh, significantly worse uh, housing problems in the socially supported area in the future. That's the reality. And I'm sure that all these charities are jumping in gleefully and saying, oh, let's take advantage of home REIT's problems by just stopping paying rent. Well, you know, the business model has been destroyed, which I think is a terrible shame. I couldn't agree with you more. I think it's the, the, the wider social consequences. It's a good reminder that actually what happens in the financial world, in the investment markets, uh, does actually have real world consequences. And it would be a great shame if the consequence of this particular episode is negative in the way you said. It's a certainty, I think. Yeah. Home REIT has a purported NAV of about a billion. Do you think we've, we've seen the end of it? I mean, I was talking to uh, someone this week about that, and they made the point that actually it'd be quite difficult for people to come in and, and take all the assets off their hands while there's still uncertainty. You won't be able to uh, take possession of the property unless you throw out the tenants, and that's not going to happen. So it could be quite difficult. Why would anyone want to come in and take the assets? Yeah, well, there's a question. Yeah, yeah there's some uh, recent news. I think... The debate about RIT is an interesting one. And yes. the critics, which was sparked off by a research note from Investec early in December, are right. I think the magic of Lord Rothschild has faded and the performance over the last five years has been pretty disappointing. And the problem is, is we've had disappointing long-term performance without the protection that you would have expected in difficult conditions of 2022. So it's, you know, it's neither a great performer in the longer term like Caledonia has been, Noise has been a defensive performer in difficult times, like um, capital gearing, rougher, or personal assets. So I do think well, that there is a long-term question mark over our RIT. Maybe if you're a holder, you, know, you might want to stay put and look for a better selling opportunity. But I think it's a lame duck. Well, the, the argument that they've always put forward, of course, is that they do preserve some capital in down markets and they capture a significant portion of up markets. But you're right, in the last five years, it hasn't been the case. Can that all be down just to one man? Is it this sort of, even though he wasn't heavily involved in the last few years, but he was the, sort of still the Eminence Grise and he's still got a large shareholding, as the family has, so they'll be, they'll be worried? I don't think he was that instrumental, in, particularly in the later years himself. And I'm sure his own personal decisions were not that great. But... He had the magic touch, and a lot of people would do business with him just because it was they were dealing with Lord Rothschilds, and people felt that they were touching royalty when they went into a meeting with Jacob Rothschild. And I thought so. I think he created an atmosphere at RIT which professionals and the current management rather regard as being well, somewhat amateurish, but actually it sort of worked. And he would never have invested in the businesses like Coupang, this the Korean internet business, which. Uh, came to the market and did fantastically well a couple of years ago, and then has basically slid all the way since. Or what's the online trading system, which they put 30 million into, read something or other. They invested in businesses which seemed very clever at the time, but have gone badly wrong. And I think that you know the new management team is just too clever for its own good. Well, we'll see how they react to that. They'll obviously want to come back and try and convince the world otherwise. The, but The trading uh, system was Robin Hood. They put £29 million into can you yes. imagine that uh, Jacob Rothschild must be thinking these people are, are bonkers and their share price has disintegrated? <laughs> okay, well, we're perhaps we'll ask them to come back and tell us what they think about all that. On the good news on that area, I mean, I, I did go and hear Scottish Mortgage Trust, and actually, you know, it is a compelling story. And I expect Scottish Mortgage Trust to do extremely well in the next few years. And one thing that I thought particularly stuck out well, their best investment last year was a Chinese company called Pindodo, which gained 60%. And that illustrates, firstly, that companies which you think are sort of out for the count and whose share price has fallen by 75%, you know, they can come back. 
The market isn't always right about these things. And even a Chinese company can come back. And I think that you know, they've got a lot of good businesses which have continued to progress in the last year, which will do very well in the future. And all that's happened is they've gone from being very highly valued to being really quite moderately valued. I think we haven't seen the, the last of Scottish Mortgage Trust or Bailey Gifford by any manner of means. I know that's going to upset a lot of people because a lot of people hate Bailey Gifford. I worked with some who hated Bailey Gifford because they were jealous. They were jealous of the fact of the way they ran their money, what a great business organization it was. And uh, and then until a year and a half ago, they were very jealous of its record. And now it's a lot of schadenfreude. You know, people are jumping up for joy every time Bailey Gifford trips up. I'm afraid there's an element of that around. You're quite right. What were they saying about the fact that they're up against their limit for private investments, I think, or getting close to it at the moment? Well, they said it meant they couldn't make any more investments, which might be a pity. Um, And I did ask Tom Slater afterwards, I said, what about uh, Twitter? And he said, well, we didn't look at it quite seriously, but we had to tell them that we were unable to invest. And he didn't say whether they would or they wouldn't have. But actually, (laughs) my personal view is that Twitter is a huge opportunity and that Elon Musk may well have the last laugh. And uh, Tom Slater showed me some of the advertising on Twitter. And I just said, I mean, it was just laughable how bad the advertising is on Twitter. So he was sympathetic to my view, shall we say, that there was a lot of potential in Twitter, which was unrealized. Maybe Elon Musk paid too much for it. But, you know, I think he'll make a fool out of all the skeptics in time. Well, it's always interesting hearing your uh, contrarian views, Max. I'm afraid to say I don't follow you on Twitter. Maybe that's because you're not on Twitter. Are you on I'm Twitter? not on Twitter. I think no. <laughs> Twitter, as it currently is, is for people who should be neither seen nor heard. Okay. So <laughs> that lets me out, I think, because I've only ever done about three tweets a year, I think. But uh, anyway, we'll see whether that, that's, that's the case or not. Is, is because Twitter, the reason is the same reason that people don't advertise on it, because Twitter doesn't have the following who it's worth advertising to or listening to. If that were to change, it would be huge. Okay, let's talk about one other thing that's happened this week. We've actually seen another announcement about an IPO. It's a sort of a refresh, if you like, of an IPO that was uh, initially launched before Christmas. This is called AT85, and it's a mid-market core infrastructure venture, primarily US, US managed and primarily operated in the US, I think. Do you have any thoughts about that? You probably haven't looked at that one, have you? Well, I haven't looked at it in detail. I haven't seen a presentation or met the management, so... I would hesitate to have any sort of view. But in general, flotations launched in a bull market are ones to be wary of. And ones which are launched when there hasn't been a flotation for about a year, you've got to take seriously. So I would say, yes, if it gets away, it's got to be interesting. Because all the history tells us bear market flotations are worth backing. There are exceptions to the rule, I'm sure. But generally speaking, the IPOs which we see this year will be worth looking at. So I wanted to also ask you about a couple of other things before we go. So one of them is about Aurora. Did you ever look at Aurora? Managed by Phoenix Asset Management. And they've given back a third of their performance fee, which is somewhat unusual and uh, I think quite a positive development, don't you think? Uh, yes, I think they're quite interesting. Um, I remember them in the old days when it was Gentleman Jim Barstow uh, used to be the manager. And it did very well for a while and he blew it up. And the new manager's... They have an interesting thesis, and it did very well for a while. And actually, they're sort of almost activist shareholders, and they made significant profits from from taking an active role in sorting out some companies. I think it's quite interesting, but it's quite small and esoteric. And in that sort of active value space, I have to say, I'd rather go for the Harwood vehicles like Rockwood or like um, Addition or Christopher Mills's uh, North Atlantic. There are people doing that probably better. And if you want a value approach, I think um, 
you know, Temple Bar is probably more interesting, or Edinburgh Investment Trust under its new management. So I sort of think it falls between the cracks a bit. So you know, good for them for returning the performance for you. But I think there are better funds in that space to invest in, although that's not to criticise them in any way. So finally, then, you've said at the top what you thought might happen over the course of this year, what you hope might happen over the course of this year. Anything you're running about in particular? Anything, your risks, do you think that people haven't appreciated fully yet? Or is that not something that enters your way of thinking? There are risks. I think this year, you know, things will turn out better than anyone expects. But for example, my sort of thought was that uh, this year, inflation will come down further and faster than expected, but it may well back up again next year. As economies pick up, you know, the uh, energy prices will come down, but then they might well start picking up again. So, you know, I think... Um, it's not that we're going to come down and the Goldilocks scenario is back. It's going to be that things come down, they look better for a while, but then, you know, then there are complications. So I think there might be some worries for 2024 to start thinking about uh, rather than the ones for this year. This year, things will be broadly OK, I think. But next year will be a challenge, as every year is, of course. And would it be impolitic of me to ask whether you've actually made any changes in what you do with your own investments or are you... Definitely a man who sort of buys and holds once you've made your basic decision. I definitely buy and uh, hold. And uh, there's some sort of data which gets trotted out regularly. And actually, we've done this in Money Week, which shows what is the average performance of a long-term unit trust and what is the actual investor performance, which shows that because investors tend to switch out at the wrong time, they actually do much worse than the average. And I'm always aware that that's what I tend to do. So Every time I sell something, I think that's probably been a mistake. And uh, God, perhaps I should, how long before I buy it back? I've actually switched out of gold um, into energy. And I think with the oil price coming back, these energy shares are very cheap. And I didn't want to buy into energy when the oil price was riding high. But now it's come right back and people are a bit more realistic. I think um, energy, particularly oil and gas companies, are attractive. Well, on that note, we'll uh, leave it there this week, Max. Thank you, as always. Very uh, stimulating and interesting. And, of course, we all hope that your prognosis turns out to be correct, as it so often does. That was Max King, former fund manager at Investec, who is now a well-known and prominent contributor to the media, including uh, he has a regular column in Money Week. So I was happy to catch up this week with Andrew Rees, who is the Property Investment Trust Analyst at Numis Securities and the author of an extensive research report, which Numis published just before Christmas, uh, looking at the whole commercial property and specialist property sectors and making some recommendations and describing how valuations have changed quite radically in some cases in the course of the last few months, uh, in particular since the inflation and rising interest rate story became one we had to grapple with. Since then, we've seen some significant derating over the last few months. So, Andrew, welcome to the podcast. I'm going to kick off by asking you to briefly summarise what happened to the shares of commercial property and specialist property trusts last year and how that was impacted by the changing environment of higher inflation and rising interest rates in particular. Thank you, Jonathan. It's a pleasure to be here. So as you mentioned, obviously 2022 was a very difficult year for listed real estate and the commercial property investment trust within our universe. This obviously was in response to the challenging macroeconomic backdrop. So as we saw, central banks really struggled to get to grips with inflation. We had obviously rising guilt yields, 
and debt costs really increased in the second half of the year, obviously spiking following the mini budget in September. But the impact of this, obviously, on forward-looking equity markets is that shares in listed property trusts really sold off on the expectation that this rising rate and rising debt cost environment will translate into uh, falling capital values going forward. Of course, some types of commercial property trusts will be more affected by the changes we've seen in higher inflation, rising interest rates, and so on. Perhaps you can explain which sectors have been affected the most uh, and why that would be the case. Yes, certainly. So particularly in the sell-off that we saw in September, we saw some of the industrial-focused property names and some of the other sector specialists in the long-income space that have really commanded premium ratings over the previous 18 months to two years that actually saw their ratings come off quite considerably and so saw the most significant share price deterioration. In contrast, actually, the uh, diversified commercial peer group that invests across all sectors within commercial property actually was already trading, uh, most of them trading at discounts to NAV, entering that sort of guilt rate spike. And so actually the, the sell-off there was still significant, but albeit less in comparison to some of the industrial names. Can you uh, give us some idea of the scale of the change in share price performance and ratings that we've observed? For example, you mentioned the industrial sector where we know there's been a very substantive change with uh, many of those trusts in the logistics and warehouse business moving from a premium to a discount that has reached uh, 40% in some cases. Some of these effects have been pretty dramatic, have they not? Yeah, they absolutely have. Yeah, At one point, we had the sector trading on a wider than 30% discount as a whole, which, which for uh, the whole listed property sector is obviously quite extreme. You know, we have seen some recovery over the final three months of the year as sort of debt markets have, have normalised. But, you know, the sector as a whole continues to trade on a wide discount, you know, more than 20% at the moment. So, you know, we'd argue it's probably something we'll, we'll come on to talk about later, but there is very much so some, some value out there. Uh, I would say the obvious comparison to make is to go back and look at previous periods when the commercial property investment trust sector has moved to a significant discount. I guess the two worst examples in living memory, at least, are the recession and ERM episode in UK history back in the very early 1990s, which led to a very sharp recession and a big move downwards in property trust ratings. And then, of course, the global financial crisis in 2008. How does the level of discounts that we're seeing now across the sector uh, compare with the low points that were reached during those two episodes? Well, as you know, sort of the coming and going of certain you know, funds within the universe means that limited funds were actually in existence back in the early 90s. But we do have obviously data that's more coherent from the uh, GFC in 2008. And you know, we don't have a level where discounts are quite reaching the same point that they did in 2008. But you know, certainly following September's mini budget, they ballooned out and, and they were sort of wider than 40% in some instances, some, some discounts touching 50% to NAV which is, you know, approaching the 50 to 55% levels that we saw during the peak GFC in 2008. So we weren't quite there from a discount perspective, but we weren't far off. And it's certainly as wide as it's been any point since then. It will be a give or take the, the slight spike that we saw in March 20 amid the sharp COVID sell-off. But I think the point that we'd like to make here is that you know, we aren't from a property market perspective looking at the, some, some of the same fundamentals that we saw in 2008. You know, we're entering this crisis with funds typically with far lower levels of gearing. Um, so we're unlikely to see the sort of distress levels that we saw in 2008. 
And also, I think from a property supply perspective in the investment markets, we don't have the same level of oversupply that we perhaps saw in 2008 that really led to rental growth stalling and valuations bottoming out. We have seen something of a recovery since the uh, the worst uh, part of the sell-off in commercial property uh, after the mini budget. But I guess the big question for everyone is, uh, where do we go from here? And in particular, which of these twin threats that we're facing, which is higher inflation and higher interest rates on the one hand, uh, and a recession or slowing economy on the other, both of which are important for commercial property, which of those are going to be more important, do you think, uh, in how this plays out? Uh, and what do you think the uh, most likely outcome is going to be? Well, I think that's actually a very good way to phrase the question because obviously in 2022 last year, we saw the guilt yield environment and, and rates really dominate sentiment. And, you know, we expect macroeconomic factors to continue to dominate sentiment towards share prices in the near term. And so we can expect some some further volatility based on the likes of you know inflation prints that come out, GDP prints. And, you know, where where guilt yields move in response to that. But I think looking forward, we are certainly expecting GDP and sort of the macroeconomic growth story to actually be more um, influential in terms of sentiment. You know, for all intents and purposes, it looks like we are in a recession at the moment. You know, the question now becomes, how deep is that recession? How long will it last? If you are of the view that it's actually sort of a short, shallow technical recession and won't be that impactful, then you know, the outlook potentially looks quite favourable. Whereas if you are approaching it from the standpoint that this is actually quite a challenging um, macro backdrop where we're going to have significant recessionary headwinds that are going to last over a year, you know, potentially two, then the scope for the Occupy demand story to really translate into, into rental growth is more challenging. And so that will obviously, you know, in any recessionary environment that is painful, it's, it's particularly painful for, for property. And so that's essentially not an attractive backdrop for the sector. And I guess that brings us on to another issue, which is dividend yields. I mean, commercial property trusts have always been attractive to investors for a couple of reasons. I mean, one is that over long periods of time, they tend to keep pace with inflation, deliver returns in line with inflation, sometimes better, sometimes worse. Uh, But they also have a tradition of paying uh, reasonable dividend yields, obviously supported by gearing in some cases. What is the level of dividend yields here? And what is the greater risk there? Presumably, the greater risk of dividend yields will come from economic slowdown from recession rather than from interest rates and inflation. Is that right or is that wrong? No, that, that, that's absolutely correct. And you know, at the moment, we've got the, the sector yielding just shy of 6.5% on average. So you know, that is an attractive income return for investors. And I think this slowdown, certainly in the capital growth story, starts to remind us that actually property over any longer term time horizon is really an income based returns model. You know, you can expect 80% potentially of your returns as a shareholder to come from income over the longer time periods. And I think, you know, coming back to your your question of sort of what will shape the level of dividends which which funds are able to pay, it's, it's going to be um, that sustainability of income. You know, we've seen positive news, certainly from the occupational markets with industrials and within you know, retail warehouses and, and some prime central London offices. And it's that that's going to really enable these funds to grow their income profile and you know, continue to pay a well-covered dividend level to, to shareholders, particularly in an environment where, where capital growth is zero or you know, small or you know, you're actually seeing, obviously, at the moment, capital values declining. It's that consistency of income return and, and, and visibility of earnings that we look for when assessing these trusts. I'm looking at the range of investor trusts in the sort of mainstream commercial property sector. And as you say, averaging just uh, around 6%, a bit more than that, maybe. 
but there's some which are yielding quite big numbers, at least on the face of it. So things like regional REIT, alternative income REIT, Ediston Property and AEW, all kind of north of 7% and so on. Is that a sign that we should be worried about the sustainability of those particular dividend yields? Look, you know, I think that's also a sign of some of the derating that's taken place in, with share prices. You know, obviously, you know, yield is a function thereof. But I think you know, if we take the likes of, of regional REIT, you're right to flag it as, as a high dividend yield in the sector. The portfolio is obviously focused entirely on, on regional offices. And that is an area where I think investors are increasingly concerned over the, the outlook for offices going forward. You know, I think everyone over the last couple of years has um, adapted their working habits. You know, we're now living in an environment where hybrid working seems to be more persistent and more prevalent than perhaps some people would, would have thought 12 to 18 months ago. And that's starting to be reflected in, in space take-up decisions for occupiers of offices. You know, these decisions have been deferred and delayed over the past 12 to 18 months while we've been in really a period of limbo in terms of working patterns. But now, you know, occupiers are having to um, assess their space requirements. And, you know, if hybrid working is, is more prevalent, they're starting to say that, you know, actually we don't need the level of office space that we've had previously. And, and so they're scaling back those space take-up decisions. But equally, we have still seen the demand for, for prime offices be fairly robust. You know, we're seeing strong take-up from occupiers there, which I think sort of talks to the, the flight to quality. But coming back to regionals, which is obviously more focused on offices outside of the M25, there are going to, definitely going to be some challenges that it faces to occupancy. Before Christmas, it reported some successful letting activity, but vacancy across the portfolio it still remains relatively high at circa 15%. So, you know, there is still definitely work for, for management to be doing there. The dividend in the first half of the year was only 75% covered, I think. So ostensibly, it's a high dividend yield, but, you know, bear in mind that it's, that it's not fully covered. And while occupancy remains at sort of the, the 85% level, there's going to be costs that the management are having to incur on those on those vacant units that are really going to you know, challenge rental cover, certainly in the second half of last year and into this year. Uh, before we look at some of the individual subsectors a bit more closely, I mean, you do said in your report, which uh, came out just before Christmas, you said that you expected some further valuation pressures in terms of uh, capitalization rates on most uh, commercial property trusts. But that could be offset to an extent by the dividend yields and uh, also by the potential for resilience in earnings. Have you changed your opinion about any of that since you produced that report? No, I don't think so. I think it's, you know, the points we were making there is that obviously from a investment market perspective, we are in the midst of a repricing in commercial property. You know, we saw that really start in July in the second half of last year and sort of accelerate into Q4. You know, from a capital values perspective, October was actually the worst month, according to the index, um, for the decline in values of, of commercial real estate. You know, we saw almost a 10% fall for industrial property in October, which is, you know, quite staggering. It was actually the largest month-on-month fall for, for all property compared to any period in the GFC. So that sort of shows you the speed and the severity of the repricing that's taking place within investment markets. You know, and we expect that to continue you know, throughout Q4. We've got November's numbers. We'll get December's numbers next week for the IPD index. And you know, that is going to be reflected in the NAVs of the entire peer group. You know, they'll start publishing their December NAVs over the coming weeks, and we expect those to show further declines driven by this repricing in investment markets. We are looking for it to slow down as we enter 2023, and we're still expecting some outward yield shift, which will continue to put pressure on valuations. But I don't think we're expecting the level of yield shift that is currently being priced in by the share prices of, of some of these funds. And like you mentioned at the start, we 
do see scope for this from an NAV returns perspective to be offset by the income generation that these these funds are still able to deliver. You know, we've still seen strong occupational markets in a lot of subsectors, and that's going to un- underpin rental growth and, and strong earnings for these trusts. And so on the one hand, yes, you are seeing a repricing in, in investment markets, and that's going to inevitably lead to NAV declines in the short term. But actually, you're sort of taking a longer term view when the market in terms of the investment market bottoms out from a repricing perspective, which you know we'd expect for certain subsectors to be within Q1, potentially Q2 this year, you're then left in a position where it's an attractive income return if they are able to, to like we mentioned earlier, deliver that, that rental growth. Uh, would it be the case in those circumstances that uh, those which have fallen furthest or had the biggest derating will, will be the ones who benefit most on the way if the market stabilises or even if it actually recovers somewhat? Well, yeah, I think that's, that's interesting. So obviously, the subsector that's been most impacted by the repricing to date has been the industrial subsector, which obviously the darling of commercial real estate over the past two years or so during the pandemic, driven by the growth in, in e-commerce. And actually, that's obviously been the, the subsector that's seen the sharpest um, falls in capital values. And to my mind, that's a driven by the fact that it was you know coming off the lowest yields and so any outward shift in net initial yields is going to have a bigger like-for-like impact when your starting yields are lower but also i think it reflects the fact that industrial property is certainly the most liquid part of the market and so you know, if you've got an open-ended fund that's looking to increase liquidity in the face of redemption say then it's, it's far easier for them to sell an industrial asset than it is to sell a shopping center in the current environment and so we've seen more transactional evidence for industrial properties, which has given value as sort of more basis upon which to mark down the values of, of these assets. And so to our mind, we could easily see a situation where the values of industrial property potentially bottom out sooner. And actually you see a more prolonged valuation decline for the likes of offices and, and some high street retail, which which could last longer into this year. And by the same token, if we look at the, uh, there's a number of trusts which obviously have these uh, long-term inflation-linked leases the likes of LXI, Value and Index Property and Supermarket REIT, trusts like that, perhaps they've been more resilient than most this year because of the nature of their business, but they're also vulnerable to rising guilt yields. What do you think the outlook for that uh, particular sector is? Is the market pricing them correctly at the moment? Yeah, that's interesting. They're certainly not immune from the impact of outward yield shift on, on valuations. You know, We've seen that with the likes of LXI. But the point to make here is obviously... A lot of these funds have embedded contractual rental uplifts, be it inflation-linked or fixed uplifts. And so whereas some of the other commercial property sectors, the uplift is driven by relettings at the end of existing leases, the rental uplifts that funds like LXI and and Supermarket Income REIT are able to to drive are often annual uplifts that are either indexed or contractually fixed. And so that creates a situation where you have a more visible increase and predictable increase in revenues and, and earnings each year. And so that is able to more directly offset the impact of the outward yield shift that we're seeing on, on capital values. Those sectors certainly have been, they were more in favour throughout the middle of last year. They have sold off slightly towards the end of last year. But I think you know that potentially is a realisation that while there is inflation linkage in, in some of those leases, often it's, it's not direct. It's capped at uh, typically levels of three, four, potentially five percent. So, you know, in an inflationary environment where you're seeing CPI at 10 percent, you aren't actually capturing all of that. You're, you're capturing sort of the maximum you can, which will you know, typically potentially be four percent. So I think a caveat to, to bear in mind there is that, yes, they will describe a high degree of inflation linkage within their leases. But that's not always a direct one for one link, link with the CPI. 
I mean, there's some specific issues that we might quickly mention as we go through some of these subsectors. We heard this week from uh, Supermarket REIT, as it happened, they've acquired a 25% interest in a joint venture they had with the, the British Airways Pension Trust to deal with the uh, Sainsbury's supermarket portfolio that they're interested in. Can you just explain what that is and what the significance of that is? What's going on there? Yeah, so this is a, a slightly complex transaction, complex arrangement, so you might have to bear with me. Essentially, Supermarket Income REIT had a joint venture 50-50 with the British Airways Pension uh, Trustees. And that joint venture owned a 51% stake in this portfolio of 26 Sainsbury's stores. So on a look-through basis, Supermarket Income REIT had 25.5% interest in that portfolio. Essentially, what they've done is they've bought out their JV partner of their interest in that portfolio. So they now, Supermarket Income REIT themselves, will now own that entire 51% interest. The other 49% interest is, is owned by Sainsbury's themselves. Like I mentioned, it's a portfolio of, of 26 stores, all Sainsbury's stores. But the point to note here is actually something that came to light last year is Sainsbury's themselves have exercised an option they previously had to reacquire those stores. So they're going to reacquire 21 of those. So actually looking forward, it's essentially Supermarket Income REIT have increased their stake in, in essentially what's going to be the remaining five stores, of which one of them will be sold over the coming months. So it's looked like a potentially quite significant transaction, given the um, the sums involved. You know, they're, they're paying $196 million to the British Airways pension trustees. But essentially, they're going to receive a lot of that back from Sainsbury's over the coming months when Sainsbury's reacquires a lot of these stores within the portfolio. So it's it's really just increasing their stake in the in the four stores going forward, management speak about it, it providing them with greater flexibility on what they can do with those four stores. And it also provides a sort of closer strategic ties with Sainsbury's as, as one of their key tenants. Yeah, so net net, not such a significant deal as it might be. A quick question about LXI, because you mentioned them and they featured in some uh, recent research you did about specific stocks. Do they have an issue with refinancing coming up? I mean, one of the issues for the commercial property sector is what kind of debt you have. A lot of them have fixed rate debt, but in a higher bond yield environment, some uh, trusts are going to face higher interest costs. And also they may have commitments which they haven't yet funded. What are your thoughts about that? And is that a general problem or how widespread is it? And how does it affect LXI, to take one example? No, certainly. I think looking at the sector as a whole, debt and debt costs has certainly been very much in focus for investors over the past 12 months. Obviously, given the rise in, in interest rates that we've seen, yeah, investors have become increasingly conscious of, of looking for funds that do have floating rate exposure within their debt books that are obviously going to see potentially steep rises in debt costs. And we have seen funds that you know, entered last year with a higher degree of, of floating rate look to take out some hedging arrangements to limit the impact of, of further rises in Sonia. But then also the flip side of the coin is if you have interest costs that might be attractive at the moment, but you've got an upcoming refinancing, then it's actually the refinancing of that debt and, and the new facility that you can take out in the current environment, which could be potentially quite impactful if it's significantly higher interest costs than, than your existing facility. And so you know, we saw Aberdeen Property Income get itself in a bit of a pickle last year with its refinancing. It, it came out and announced refinancing in October, putting a, an interest rate swap in on its new debt facility that was potentially going to have a pretty eye-watering interest cost up, up towards 6% all in. It's actually subsequently come out and broken that because you know debt markets have become more favourable, but it still sort of speaks to the issues that can be faced if you have, if have near-term refinancings. Looking at LXI specifically, you're right to mention they do have a significant amount of debt maturing over the next two years. 
And so, yeah, we expect this is something that, that management and something they've spoken about is proactively looking at all available financing options for them. One of the facilities that, that expires this year was the acquisition facility that they used to complete their merger with Secure Income REIT last year. That does have a one-year extension option, which which we expect management will exercise. And I think the, the other point to make on LXI is obviously now as a far bigger fund following that merger, you know, it's, a, it's a £3 billion portfolio. It's going to have access to potentially some sources of, of finance that it potentially would have done previously. And also its, it's existing debt wasn't incredibly cheap. And so net-net, we don't actually envisage that the increase in debt cost that it's going to have to face as a result of this refinancing will be too significant. Okay, so let's move on then talk about some other sectors. We haven't talked much about the specialist property sectors, and there have been quite a lot of interesting developments in those sectors. Perhaps we could briefly, uh, well, start with the social housing sector, which has been, if you like, the kind of centre of one or two storms in the past couple of years. Travails of Civitas social housing and Triple Point social housing, issues about their uh, sustainability of their business model, among many other things. And also the travails of Home REIT, where we had a, a further update this week. So uh, perhaps you could tell us what uh, the latest development in that saga is. Obviously, this is a trust that provides uh, accommodation for homeless people and is backed by local authorities, ultimately. But there are a lot of issues around there. So perhaps you could tell us what the latest development is that came out this week. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it feels like we can't get a week go by without Home Reap being in, in the headlines in the investment trust world for one reason or another. And the latest issues that have come to light this week and you know the company actually issued an announcement yesterday flagging essentially that they have been unable or they haven't received the rent certainly from from two of their larger tenants that's um, big help foundation and noble tree for the period since the 31st of august obviously there was a lot of furore around the the short selling report that came out in november last year and in management's rebuttal to that they very clearly stated that up to the 31st of August, they had no rental arrears. And so obviously this is a period since then. Management published that rebuttal on the 30th of November. So one could argue that there could potentially have been knowledge that their their rent collection had fallen off in the period since then. But certainly they've come out yesterday and and confirmed that these two tenants who had been featured in some press reports um, over this past week have not been paying rent. This is obviously another step in what's becoming quite a, a painful saga Shares are currently suspended. They remain suspended until the company will publish its annual results to the 31st of August. You know, those were due um, obviously before the 31st of December. We're expecting these before the end of this month, hopefully. And there's going to be obviously a lot of scrutiny on those results. But I think, obviously, you know, with shares suspended, there's a lot of uncertainty over the outlook for the fund. And it's left shareholders obviously in a very difficult and painful decision. That's slightly unfortunate, to say the least, to come up with that kind of part of your rebuttal. And then, in a sense, uh, while it's technically correct, you would have thought they might have uh, had a better handle on the rent situation and been more forthcoming about that. So that could be quite damaging. Obviously, the shares before they were suspended were trading on a huge discount. But it's raised a lot of money over the last two years. It's been very rapid expansion to about a billion in assets, uh, purportedly at least. What do you think the options are if depending how this comes out. I mean, they come back with a audited figures and so on. Uh, but in the worst case, do you think this could be the end of home REIT in its current form? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's a, it's a very difficult situation and there doesn't seem to be any easy solution. You know, we could look from a property perspective. At the end of the day, the fund does own the real estate. And so from a property perspective, 
if even if you argue that the just shy of six percent net interest yield that's applied to the assets from their most recent valuation date to the end of February, if you argue that's not an appropriate yield to be applied, even if you increase that to say eight, nine, ten percent to reflect the higher risk of that rental income stream, you're still seeing shares. I mean, at the level they were suspended about thirty eight p. They're still at a wide discount to to what the implied NAV would be, even with that revalued portfolio. So, you know, is there potentially some embedded value there? Potentially, but I think you're also at a point where you've got to question how easy it would be to, to realise that value. You know, we talk about vacant possession value in property, but you have a situation where you have you know, very vulnerable homeless people as the, the underlying residents in situ here. And so, you know, even if you had someone looking to acquire this property at vacant possession value, it's actually you know, achieving that vacant possession could be quite difficult. I think there's there's a lot of opacity in terms of the income stream and whether that's you know ultimately being funded by the vendor, how much of that is coming from the government in the form of housing benefit that's passed on to the, the charity tenant partners. And so I think it's very difficult for people to coherently form a view of what a sensible valuation is. And yeah, you're right, you sort of look forward and think how this could play out. You know, it, obviously a lot will depend on what's contained within their results as and when they are published. You know, I think so, certainly a lot of attention will be paid to some of the caveats and um, you know, assurances that, that are provided in there. Um, you know, we'll wait to see sort of what additional work and additional procedures the auditors have, have been doing. You know, has that involved reconsulting with the third party valuers to, to really get comfortable with the, the valuation yields that they're applying? But yeah, it, it's certainly a, a wait and see, but I, I don't think there's any sort of swift or easy recovery for, for the fund in this instance. Yeah, I rather agree with you, I have to say, and I, I fear that uh, its whole episode has been rather unfortunate. But who knows? We'll find out uh, when the board comes back. We'll see how the market reacts to that. Finally, I wanted to, uh, to perhaps pick up on healthcare trusts, specialist healthcare trusts. What are your thoughts about those at the moment? I mean, they've got their own issues to deal with, but uh, in terms of yields and so on, what are, what are your, th- your thinking about them? Yeah, so I guess two of the key ones that we look at in the care home space, so we have target healthcare and impact healthcare. And obviously, like you mentioned, there are challenges that these underlying tenants who are who are care home operators essentially are facing from a cost perspective. You know, they've seen significant rises in their labour costs, partly as a fact of having to, to employ more agency staff in the sort of recruitment crisis they faced. But they've also obviously seen energy costs go up, as, as everyone has, and, and, and food costs as well. And, you know, and together, those make up a significant proportion of the, the expenditure that care home operators are having to incur. And that's putting a natural squeeze on margins. Their rental expense, while it's you know, not a significant proportion of their expenditure compared to some of those other costs, it's still obviously increasing with inflation because that's embedded within the leases that these two REITs are able to agree with the operators. And so what we're actually seeing is we're seeing a situation where there's a high degree of attention being paid to the ability of the operators to pass on those inflationary pressures onto the underlying residents in the form of fee increases. And, you know, to a certain degree, we've, we've actually seen them been able to do that. Um, certainly in the first half of the year, both care home REITs reported that their underlying operators were being able to pass on healthy, you know, 8 to 10% annualised increases in the fees paid by, by underlying residents. But, the, you know, the longer these inflationary pressures last, I think the more you have to question the extent to which they'll be able to pass on those fee increases repeatedly. And so you see a situation where the underlying rent cover, so that sort of the tenant turnover or tenant operating profit compared to the, the rent they're paying to the REITs, 
where that becomes more squeezed from the sort of levels of, of 1.8 to 2 times that we've seen historically, it sort of comes down to more sort of 1.5 to 1.6 times. Um, and that is a situation where you could see some of these tenants that potentially don't have the most streamlined or efficient operating models potentially face some some solvency challenges. So, you know, I think, you know, a lot of that is actually reflected in the, in the price of some of these routes. Certainly, you know, Target Healthcare is trading on a more than 20% discount last time I checked. And so, you know, you can argue a lot, a lot of that uncertainty in terms of the sustainability of their rents is baked in to the current price. But, you know, I think we have to be, have to be mindful of those challenges that the underlying care operator tenants are facing in the current environment while we assess these, these REITs and whether the, the current discounts offer, offer potential value. We did hear from Impact Healthcare this week. They've made an acquisition, I think, or invested in six new care homes, and they've funded that with partly with cash and partly with issuing new shares. How has that gone down in the market? I think those shares are being issued at 116p, which is a slight premium to the current price. Is that right? Yeah. So the structure of it is that they were essentially issuing those shares at the 30 September NAV level. So yes, correct. Given it's trading on a on a modest discount at the moment, that the effective issuance price of those shares is at a premium to the current share price. We have seen impact trade tighter than its than its closest peer target. You know, the, the discount for impact is more modest at, at high single digits or just just north of ten percent. But I think in part that also reflects the the fully covered dividend yield, which which impact is delivering. You know, we've seen in comparison to Target, Target's dividend for the first half of last year was about 72, 73% covered by its adjusted earnings, whereas Impact's dividend was fully covered. And, you know, that sort of potentially points to the higher level of, of cash generation from the business, given it's a, a higher proportion of publicly funded underlying residents compared to Target, which has obviously has a higher proportion of, of private pay residents, reflecting its bias towards rooms that have ensuite rec rooms and of higher quality. Well, that brings us to the end of our conversation, Andy. Thanks very much for joining us. I think it's been reported you've put out some recommendations of trusts you particularly like. You can find that if you look at any of the news media that covers investment trusts. But just in the final point then, what are the kind of things you're looking for? What, what are the distinguishing features you highlight for trusts in particular in your research? What kind of things are you looking for, though, in particular at this stage in the cycle, which is obviously, as you say, we're still in the middle of a kind of potential repricing. Yeah, I think the things that really stand out for us are funds that are able to deliver consistency of income through the current cycle, through any cycle, really, because it's that income generation story that will be able to enable them to, to pay attractive, fully covered dividends to shareholders. You know, a lot of trust in the space are, are yielding north of five and a half, potentially six percent. And if, you know, if that's fully covered and underpinned by an attractive income base, then we actually view these fund some of them as, as really attractive propositions at the moment. You know, elsewhere, obviously, you want to be backing strong management teams with good track records in, in the current environment, you know, teams that have experience of, of navigating capital value declines and still, you know, delivering returns to shareholders. You know, often those are management teams that also have uh, skin in the game themselves, so to speak, with shareholdings in, in the vehicles that they're running. So those are some of the things that we look for. You know, we don't want necessarily to be to be allocating to, to funds that have potential balance sheet risks in the current environment. You know, some of the more highly levered funds, um, while we don't think you know they'll face necessarily challenges and, and distress, we're we're more comfortable with funds that have a you know, conservative approach to gearing and have you know robust balance sheets with low average cost of debt and, and no near term refinancing risk and, and limited exposure to to rising rates. But yeah, I, th I think looking at the current level of, of discounts that are out there, there are definitely some value options within the, the listed real estate sector. 
you know, I think while people have to be conscious that in the current environment, while macro sentiment still impacts share prices uh, quite significantly, there is going to potentially be some some share price volatility along the way. But you know, we note that it's it's from stages like this historically where where investors have been able to realise some of the best returns from from listed property. So that was Andrew Reitz, the property investment trust analyst at Numis Securities. So that's all for this week on the Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I should be back again next week when uh, one of my guests will be Matt Hose, the uh, Alternative Assets Analyst at Jefferies. We're looking forward to see whether this uh, strong momentum that has kicked off the year continues into 2023. The old market saying, as January goes, so goes the market over the year. Well, we'll see if that's the case. We're not yet at the end of January, but uh, certainly it's been a positive start to the new year. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.